You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Beard. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, forming the second half of what is obviously a crack podcasting duo. Or is it? Yes, today is our three-on-three episode. First up, we're going to be reviewing the new film from J.C. Chander, Triple Frontier. And then Wade and I are going to decide whether we are actually being ourselves or simply playing versions of ourselves as we jump into a review of Jafar Panahi's latest experiment in metafictional games, Three Faces. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 192 of Seeing and Believing. First things first. Any man here that wants to walk away can do so knowing they're the best of us. This gotta be now. There is no ground support. The injuries we sustain, we're walking out with. Make no mistake about it. You guys need to own the fact that we do not have the flag on our shoulders. You cannot go back to your normal life after tonight. Yes, we are here. Episode 192 of Seeing and Believing. And Kevin, people are excited about Jordan Peele's Us. We're going to be reviewing that next week. I don't think people are excited enough about Three Faces from Jafar Panahi. Always (laughs) excited to look at his work. So I'm pumped we can talk about that today. Yeah, when we found out that we were going to be able to review that on this episode, I I might... Okay, well, I didn't actually do a, a joyful little jig, but I was pretty pumped about it, too. <laughs> yeah, so it it's pretty exciting, and I hope our listeners stick around. First up, today's episode begins with our discussion of Netflix's new film, Triple Frontier. Here's the movie's official synopsis to get us going. A group of former Special Forces operatives, played by Ben Affleck, Oscar Isaac, Charlie Hunnam, Garrett Hedlund, and Pedro Pascal, reunite to plan a heist in a sparsely populated multi-border zone of South America. For the first time in their prestigious careers, these unsung heroes undertake this dangerous mission for self instead of country. But when events take an unexpected turn and threaten to spiral out of control, their skills, their loyalties, and their morals are pushed to a breaking point in an epic battle for survival. So, Triple Frontier is directed by J.C. Chander, whose previous films include Margin Call, All is Lost, and A Most Violent Year. Kevin, if, if I remember correctly... In the past, you've recommended both All is Lost and A Most Violent Year on the show. So, given your sweet spot for Chander's work, what were you hoping to see in Triple Frontier? And did the end result meet those expectations? Well, I think what I really appreciate about Chander as a, as a director is his formal control, I guess, in both All is Lost and A Most Violent Year just there's this polish to his films this sense that every image is really well judged and lit just so for maximum impact that you you get the sense you're watching a film that has almost been fussed over that chandor knows exactly 
what he's trying to do with his film and you feel like you're in good hands with him. And I was looking forward to that with with this film. I was also looking forward to seeing what Chandra would do when working with Mark Bowl. He um, co-wrote the screenplay with Bowl, who is probably best known for collaborating with Catherine Bigelow on... Uh, Zero Dark Thirty, and I think The Hurt Locker as well, but definitely Zero Dark Thirty. And I I was curious to see how those two sensibilities kind of intermingled and interacted, because the way that Bigelow's films that I mentioned work, they they work in a different way than what I think of when I think of a J.C. Chander film. So I was curious to see how Mark Bowles writing and kind of his whole approach to um, seeing men in action uh, contrasted and complemented J.C. Chander's uh, directorial hand. I, I think it's an interesting film. I don't think it's entirely successful, and we can maybe talk about why, um, but I, I there are times where I feel as if this marriage is a little bit more uneasy than the the film can handle it feels like chandor in this case at least lost a little bit of the sure hand that he displayed in his previous films and that's unfortunate because there are some flashes of greatness in this film even if it doesn't fully stick the landing for me but i'm curious to know uh what what you think about it i think i'm i'm similar to you in that there are some sequences in this film that i think work great and you know that a film is tense when you are literally f- physically squirming in your seat. And there were a number of moments in the picture where, where that was me, where I'm, I'm gripping my, my fingers, I'm, I'm moving around, okay, come on, let's go. And I, I think that Chander does some of those scenes pretty well. I like the visual style of this film. The characters are often silhouetted against a... A natural backdrop, uh, jungle, snow, lake, whatever it is. And in many ways, it reinforces the moral ambiguity of the choices that they are making. And you can follow those choices throughout the film visually. So I, I I do appreciate that. I think for me, where the story breaks down is I never felt like I got inside the head of these characters. And I I found myself comparing this film to a a film that's turning 20 this year, Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. You have soldiers on, on a mission. This one has been sanctioned by the government. And the plot is moving forward. We're getting to save it. We're, We're getting to Private Ryan. And yet, Spielberg finds a way to develop the relationship among his characters. And as I was trying to figure out how Triple Frontier missed that, I, I, I was reminded that throughout the movie, the characters in Triple Frontier, they talk a lot about the plot. They push forward the plot. They push forward the plan. They talk about how the government hasn't taken care of them. And that's about it. We don't really dig deep into who they are. There's one or two scenes that do that, one around a campfire where they're just kind of hanging out, and there's another that is a pretty good line from Ben Affleck. 
But other than that, there seemed to be this shield in front of the story, and I think it was it was the plot. So there's there are there's material to commend here, and there's it also feels like kind of a kind of a wasted opportunity. Oh, I and here's kind of where I'm going to get back to to Mark Bowl a little bit because watching this film, I was really reminded of Zero Dark Thirty with the that film's emphasis more on procedure and more on watching these characters go about this job that they're doing very well and leaving a lot of the work in kind of getting to the bottom of the characters and also deciding what we think of them, leaving a lot of that to the audience rather than making that plain in the screenplay. And I like Zero Dark Thirty a lot. I think it's a tremendous film and really raises a lot of uh, very thought-provoking questions about the use of force, about the military, about the lengths to which people will go in order to accomplish what they think they're justified in doing. In this film, though, I think there's a similar emphasis on procedure in in the screenplay. And I think this might be getting at what you're talking about when you feel like you don't get to know any of the characters all that well, I think that's partially by design. I think the screenplay is very much focused on just portraying these the, these men and their plan and just sort of following them as the consequences of their actions unfold and as they try to sort of juggle their responsibilities in any given situation. So they decide to pull off this heist Um, taking a bunch of money from a drug lord and then making off with it uh, by helicopter. And from the beginning of that heist all the way pretty much to the end of the film, we see them sort of adapting to new situations as they come, dealing with complications, and basically being what in the bowl universe is, is, is a professional. You know, somebody who we may not feel entirely comfortable rooting for, but is undeniably good at their job. I think Chandor doesn't have the same ability to interrogate the character's motivations that Catherine Bigelow exhibited in Zero Dark Thirty. And I think I and I'm wondering almost if that might have something to do with Bigelow having a different perspective on the extreme testosterone and, and masculinity that that these characters produce where in, in Zero Dark Thirty, the main character is a woman, but she's surrounded by all these you know, CIA interrogators and soldiers who are very much sort of man's men. And a lot of her character is bound up in how she adapts herself to that environment. And that environment is still present in Triple Frontier, but it seems as if Chander isn't as interested or at least hasn't quite figured out how to portray that environment without sort of giving himself over to it. There's a lot of soundtrack choices that are sort of 70s protest songs, you know, the kinds of songs you always see in stories about, you know, Marines going on a on a job or, you know, people uh, going into the jungle to uh, per- perform some acts of militant heroism. And it seems as if that what this movie is trying to do is to try to say there's something not necessarily all right about that. But some of Chandra's choices in the soundtrack and in other ways seems almost as if he's not in on that purpose. And that hurts the film. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the soundtrack 
And I was I was reading an interview with with Chander as he was talking about that, and specifically his use of Metallica and how he connects that to testosterone and what he's trying to do with the story. It is a little bit odd. I'll have to say this. I'm a big fan of CCR. I like John Fogarty a lot. But you you start to wonder how many, you know, how did CCR get so many of their songs in films? It's kind of everywhere. And we do get the vibe that this is kind of a classic, this is a classic shoot-em-up picture. Now, to give Chander credit, this is in some ways kind of twists up that template or that outline. This is not something like Ocean's Eleven where the characters are going to come in and we root for them and everything goes according to plan. There are knots in the story, which I think further kind of bring forth the ideas of not only what have we done to put these characters in this place, but how has the system shape them and train them for what they're doing and molded their mentality. I think one of the best lines in the film does come from Ben Affleck, who I I think is pretty good here. He's kind of this, this somber guy who clicks into gear once he builds his plan for the heist. And he says, I miss this. And he he talks about the mistakes that he's made, and he says the only thing that makes it feel better is when they put a gun in my hand. And I would have liked to explore more of that, and I think he's playing around with it with the plot and greed and this sort of lust for more and more gets them in trouble, but I'm not sure he digs anything under that. And so like I said, coming out of it, it's a pretty entertaining picture. I think I get kind of the point of it all, but it's missing some of those essential elements that make films like this really, really good. There is kind of a a sense that we're almost getting a, a generic version of, of a very interesting idea. That uh, moment that you mentioned with Affleck is one. There's actually a moment where one character says, this family deserves it, i.e. the money that they've stolen, and so do we. And th- that idea of deserves, you know, the idea that because what motivates these men is kind of getting what they think belongs to them. They haven't been appreciated by the government that they served for so long while in the military. They feel underappreciated maybe by their families. And so they they feel like grasping at something that isn't theirs is something they deserve to do, that they're entitled to. And that's something that is a very compelling hook to hang a story on. And I think at some points, Chander and Bull really do arrive at a at some, some very intriguing moments. But like you said, because we don't get a good sense of these characters as people, it, it, it feels almost as if we're struggling to square their flaws with their status as professionals. And it doesn't quite compute. The way that their greed 
allows them to forget their professionalism, so to speak, for a little while. In some places it works. In other places, it kind of reads almost like one of those horror movies where the characters do obviously stupid things that they would never do in that situation simply to move the the story forward. And there's a little bit of that in this film. Yeah, I think the film, just on a plot level, kind of lacks surprise. I was looking for a little more surprise in the film. I, I didn't really get that. And I do, I like this idea of how money or greed can cause us to rationalize every type of behavior. And I like that idea. And, you know, I'm reminded of the teachings of Jesus where we we learn about how we can actually serve money. It becomes our master. And visually we see that in this story that once these characters catch sight of the money— and I, 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 like, I like most of that sequence. Once they catch sight of that money, it's as if, it's as if a, flip, a, a switch has flipped in their mind and something has changed. But then again, like you mentioned, Ben Affleck's character has been shot five times. He was a commander. He understands battle and warfare. He put together the plan to go in. He's a details guy. To, to, so to see him making certain decisions or decisions that he does make it, it, that are just, you know, causes me to scratch my head, it feels a little outside of his purview and outside of what would normally happen. And like you mentioned, it just wants to kind of push the, fl- the plot forward. And then, into, you know, on top of that, I think there are some soundtrack issues. I, I don't think the soundtrack is all that memorable. Uh, the score, maybe is a better way to say it. The score is all that memorable. And I think there are some edits. But visually, it, it, it looks pretty good. It's really odd, though, that the, the soundtrack is kind of as forgettable as it is, because this isn't just anyone who's handling soundtrack duties on this film. This is Disaster Piece, who scored the amazing music for It Follows. I mean, this this is a soundtrack that should be really memorable, and it doesn't really feel that way. And it's difficult to put your finger on exactly why. Now, going back to what I mentioned earlier about kind of the pop hits on the soundtrack, the the Metallica, the Creedence Clearwater Revival, that kind of stuff. I will give Chandra credit in that he does seem to be doing something very intentional with those needle drops on this film. So the first time we get one of these needle drops happens in kind of this prologue scene where Oscar Isaac is helping some South American police take out this uh, nest of drug dealers. And, you know, we get the usual shots of these armored vehicles driving through the streets, followed by a helicopter, and there's this Metallica on the soundtrack. And it's, it's kind of generic. And then we cut to inside the helicopter, and Oscar Isaac takes off his headphones, and Chander cuts the music just like that. And we get, this, we get the realization that his character, that's almost like his own internal soundtrack. He sort of has that in his head. It's so that Chandor isn't saying that this is, you know, this is the kind of person he is. He's he's manly and he's he's going to, you know, go knock some heads together. He's saying that no, this is what he thinks of himself, but that's not necessarily who he is. And that is a, a savvy use of the soundtrack, even though it doesn't 
really get carried through the rest of the film and begins to kind of fall into some of the more uncritical views of the character's machismo that it has set up to be interrogated earlier in the film. I also like that Chandor, even working within this context, is still very much an image maker. And I want to talk a little bit about the ways this film plays with the ways in which immoral acts, or at least very extreme acts, can leave a mark upon a person. That's something that we see in the very first scene where Charlie Hunnam's character is giving this motivational speech to veterans who are trying to come to terms with the actions they've taken in combat. And there's a moment in this film where one of the characters crosses a line. He kills a person who he wasn't really supposed to kill, and he does it in such a way that it really strongly affects him. And Chandor shoots this moment uh, from a low angle. So we're looking up at this character, and the green of the jungle is about shoulder level in the camera's eye, and then his head is just up in these these white uh, overcast cloud cover that's above the jungle. And that really is a wonderful image because it's not Chandra relying on dialogue to sell it. He's not really playing into these uh, hyper-masculine tropes he's been resorting to earlier in the film. He's simply showing a very strong image that indicates exactly the toll that this particular kill took on the supposed man of action. And I think that's a wonderful moment. I would have liked to have seen more of it in the movie. Yeah, and I I would have liked to see I would have liked to see some of that fleshed out a little bit more. And I, I think it all kind of goes back to what I mentioned, just really wanting to feel more of those characters. And I really like the cast here. I mean, uh, any one of these main characters have and, and can lead a movie. And just the fact that they were together for this film caused me to be excited. Oscar Isaac, he kind of takes the lead in this film. And I think he does a fine job. I think most of the cast is, is pretty good. And it is frustrating that Chander couldn't get a little bit more from this picture. Listeners, we are excited to share this review with you, and we want to hear your thoughts as well. You can check out Triple Frontier on Netflix. It's currently streaming. What would you think of it? Shoot us a tweet at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. Our review of Three Faces is coming up next. Juggler by Joey Picorio. 
We are excited about all the listeners who've taken an opportunity to support us on our Patreon page. When you do that, you keep our podcast going, and we very much appreciate it. We've got a lot of levels of donation, uh, donation levels there on the Patreon page. And one of my favorites, Kevin, is the what can you buy for $5 level? It's really great. A lot of great perks. And I, I wanted to ask you a question. It had to do with that. And, and it says, what can you buy for $5, Kevin? Well, you know, all of us have our own least favorite historical figures. You know, the, the, you know, the popes from the 1300s or maybe the the members of President James Buchanan's cabinet that you really just can't stand. $5 would allow you to buy an oven mitt with that historical figure's face on it so that every time you take something scalding hot out of the oven, you do it with their face. That's that's pretty amazing. And I, I've never thought of that, but it's kind of a good oh. way to like payback you know (laughs) like buchanan did not handle the rising crisis in america between north and south his cabinet didn't do it and you can pay him back for that yeah just a terrible president terrible president he you know deserves uh, a few moments with his face pressed up against (laughs) a cookie a cookie sheet that has been baking some delicious chocolate chip cookies no cookies for you, Buchanan. You just get the scalding metal. <laughs> Only $5. Another thing you could buy for $5 is basically uh, a support level here at our Patreon page. It's really easy. You get some great perks. We want you to be a part of the show and support the show. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Really simple, really easy. We very much appreciate it. We also very much appreciate all the listeners who write in to let us know their thoughts on the show every week. We heard from Todd Smith this week, Wade, over the Twitters, and he uh, had some thoughts on our review of Captain Marvel. He said, Captain Marvel may be a good movie after the character has been in three or four movies, and we have some information about her, because right now we know very little, if anything, about her character. I'm totally on board with his reading there. Plus, he says, Larson's acting here was not very good. Not sure if I'm going to go out on that limb with him, but, uh, you know, we, we, we're definitely in agreement that uh, Captain Marvel, maybe not so great. I don't know. Uh, well, I think I like, I, I, did, I did like it more than him. And I think this is, like I said last week, this is a first step for the character. So there's so much more to learn. And Marvel is going for the long game. So love it or hate it. They're going to take smaller steps in this film just to kind of get us acclimated to this character. I think Larson does a fine job of that. And I guess it worked because I'm looking forward to seeing her in Avengers Endgame. So somehow they did what they were supposed to do. I'm looking forward to that. And I guess that's all they could ask for, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> I can ask for a lot more, quite frankly, but it takes all kinds. Todd, thanks so much for writing in and letting us know your thoughts. Listeners, if you would like to let us know your thoughts on Captain Marvel or the two movies that we talk about on the show today, you can, of course, send us a tweet or send us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We're back here in the second half of the show, and I am going to say, wait, the first half, I was absolutely being myself, no filter whatsoever. In the second half, though, I might be playing a version of myself, and it's up to you to decide whether I'm doing that or not, to parse the difference, shall we say. (laughs) Whether you're reading off of a script or if you're coming up with everything on the spot. That's the that's the big question, Kevin, and I'm going to try to figure it out by the end of this review. Yeah, well, or even if I wrote the script myself and I am playing myself in the script, truly, what is the difference between that and just being myself? These are all questions that uh, Jafar Panahi has been seemed very interested in here in the latter phase of his career. Having been barred from traditional filmmaking, Panahi has kind of had a late career, I don't, I don't want to say renaissance, because that implies that he had a slump at some point, but he definitely seems to have found a certain measure of creative freedom in working within the strictures that have been imposed on him by the Iranian government, and his latest film, Three Faces, is certainly no exception. Three Faces is about actress Benaz Jafarhi, played by herself, who is distraught when she comes across a young girl's video plea for help after her family prevents her from taking up her studies at the Tehran Drama Conservatory. Benaz abandons her shoot and turns to Jafar Panahi, also played by himself, to help with the young girl's troubles. They travel by car to the rural northwest of the country, where they have amusing encounters with the charming and generous folk of the girls' mountain village. But Banaz and Jafar also discover that old traditions die hard. So, obviously, there are a lot of characters playing themselves in this film, Wade. And you and I have both seen and quite enjoyed Panahi's most recent output, where he does sort of blur the line between reality and fiction and almost dares the audience to tell the difference between the two and to find where the line is drawn, however faintly. So my question for you is, in this, his latest film, Three Faces, 
how does that evolution in his artistic career, how does that read to you in this film? Yeah, so, no, yeah, you're right. We talked about Taxi, his previous film, on the podcast, and I I like the movie, and I liked not being able to know what was staged and what was not staged. It added a meta quality to that story. And we're here at this film, Three Faces, and we're we're looking at that same question. What's real? What's not real? Are these characters simply playing themselves? Or are they representing themselves in certain ways for certain reasons? And I, I think that works pretty well for what this movie is trying to do. What I like about this film is that Panahi doesn't settle for just that question. He doesn't settle just to talk about his ban and how he he's not supposed to make movies anymore. He doesn't settle for just talking about censorship, though that is here, or just that meta quality, the story within a story, fiction, reality kind of converging. Instead, he goes a little bit deeper, and he looks at the different types of beliefs, the more progressive, the traditional beliefs within Iranian society, and how that affects individuals, mostly women. And I I really did appreciate that because I'm watching probably the first half an hour, and I'm thinking about some of the same ideas that I thought about with Taxi. And then the movie just kind of opens up and it blossoms into something different entirely. And I, I really did like that new direction within within that same sort of pathway that he's been on before. Panahi definitely likes to keep me on my toes because in this film, I, I kind of went into it almost expecting to do what I did with this is not a film and with Taxi, which is to kind of try to keep an eye out for the artifice, right? Like what is constructed? What is spontaneous? Um, Is there really a difference between the two? Like these are all questions that I was really approaching this film and had in mind to, to deal with. And Panahi faked me out yet again in producing a film that in a lot of ways is is a lot more straightforward in those areas than his previous uh, couple of films, which isn't to say that it's it's bad. It's just different. There are definite ways in which he plays with that dividing line between reality and artifice, but he seems more interested in other issues, specifically in gender dynamics, tradition, and sort of how observing another group's um, traditions and practices, how they can completely alter the way those beliefs play out. So this is a film that is... So from the beginning of this film, this is already a little bit different from Panahi's previous films where he's sort of the central figure if not the central character. This film focuses entirely on the Nas Jafari to the point where the f- the only thing we see for the first, I don't know, like 15 minutes of the film is her face. 
She's in a car. She's driving somewhere. We don't know where yet with Panahi in the driver's seat. And she's looking at her phone and trying to come to terms with the fact that this young girl might have committed suicide um, because Jafari didn't get back to her in time. You know, And she's wrestling with... Uh, feelings of guilt over this, wondering whether it's even true, if it's a put-on, but the camera stays entirely on her face. And it becomes clear that women are going to be the focus of this film. The struggles that they experience being in this patriarchal society, particularly this rural village that they end up in, which is much more traditional maybe than uh, the circles that Panahi normally runs in. And we observe them as the ins and outs of these dynamics become clear, right? And we begin to wonder, is the unreality we're feeling, is it because we're not sure entirely how much of this is staged or because we can't quite believe that some of these uh, practices are seriously held in such high esteem? There's a lot of folk traditions and folk beliefs that Panahi puts front and center in this film that he also is very intentionally interrogating, right? Like he's not just putting them up in in sort of an anthropological sense as uh, something to be observed and and sort of uh, take at face value. He's interested in deconstructing them a little bit. And the way that that interacts with with the blurred line between uh, what we're already wondering, well, how much of is what we're seeing is real? The way that it interacts with that is is really interesting. And again, it was something that I wasn't expecting out of this film. And, and Panahi has fun with these traditions, and they get they get kind of wild, right? So you have talk of a foreskin, you have talk of a bull with golden testicles. You have all these different strange traditions. And the film, the film, it's not that it condemns these traditions in the sense of like explicitly condemning them. And it's not that it necessarily laughs at them, but we do laugh alongside the traditions. And by the end of the film, while we understand these people, we also understand that there are issues or problems within this traditional society, that it's hurting individuals, particularly women. And I really like how Panahi manages to work through that. And he does it mostly through observation instead of direct commentary. So this movie is almost a nod to Abbas Kiristami's work, uh, taste of cherry. We we, we watch people. Uh, characters are driving around for a good portion of the film. Panahi, like you said, Kevin, is a side character. He's a quiet observer, and he reflects the camera. The camera is a quiet observer, and I just I really loved just watching the camera as it as the car kind of just drives through these streets. And so the camera for, for many scenes is just kind of pointed out of the, the front windshield. And we're just, we're watching these people cross the street with goats or moving a tractor out of the way or 
crowds kind of running in. We see this landscape that is at one, in one sense, it's kind of rugged, kind of unhospitable, but then also kind of beautiful, kind of comforting. And we get the sense that the people are the same way. There are these honor codes. They, they are hospitable at times, but then they have these particular beliefs that are hurting others. So the way that Panahi looks at this culture, critiques this culture, it's all done in a way that feels like he cares about these people. And that's not always easy to pull off. How many films do we see where individuals are critiquing a part of society and it's as if they have they care nothing about those people or they they look at them as purely evil and so i really love that balance and i just love kind of just watching the culture just watching these people watching uh, where they live and and how they operate it it really was a, a that part was a was a great experience for me uh, it certainly helps that a lot of what we see of this uh, more old-fashioned traditional culture is really broadly relatable. So there's a scene where Panahi is speaking kind of with uh, a, a few men at a, at a tea shop. It's kind of a hangout place. And he's asking them about this really convoluted system they developed involving the road that goes in and out of the village. It's a very narrow road. Only one car can travel on it at a time. And with a ravine on one side, that raises the question of, well, what do you do if two cars meet in the middle of the road? You know, like, how do you prevent a situation where two cars are going in opposite directions and they kind of reach an impasse and one of them has to drive in reverse all the way back so that they can not be blocked up forever? And Panahi's asking for an explanation of the system that they developed in order to deal with this. And it leads into this discussion about rules and traditions in general. And one of the the men of the village says, you know, everything falls apart without rules. But in this village, we have rules that that make life make sense, something along those lines. And that's something that is not just, you know, something we look at as another culture's thing. That's true of all people, that we are comfortable when we have rules that tell us uh, what the standards are, like what we should, how we should behave in a certain situation, or uh, how we should dr- conduct ourselves while driving so that we don't cause any any accidents, or whether we are raising our children correctly if X, Y, or Z happens. These are all things that we know ourselves is are true of ourselves. That rules kind of make the world go round. What Panahi's film is asking is well, what if the way that those rules are making the world go around are actually detrimental? And that's a really interesting question to be asking. And I think the way that he explores that through leading us to question not just the underpinnings of the culture of this village, but even the underpinnings of his film itself, like how much of it we can take at face value again, is a really neat parallelism and really makes this film more than it would be if it would just serve more of a straightforward fiction feature. Yeah, and there are times when I'm almost convinced that what we're seeing is not staged. This is very much a documentary-style filmmaking. Then there are other scenes where we know they're set up, right? So characters are exploring a new place, 
and the camera is already set up so the camera is not following them in and they are walking in as if this is the this is the first time they've been in this cave so we do get the sense that there is an operator that there is setup involved but where does that line begin and where does that line end it also allows panahi to because it is in a strict documentary to have a little bit more control over certain shots there are some amazing shots in this film one is a is a time-lapse shot and really the whole sequence it it begins at at sunset and it's really fantastic to take that scene and compare it to scenes in taxi so you have uh, scenes in taxi where there are cars kind of going everywhere kind of dust in the streets it's kind of loud and here, a film that's definitely looking at urban life versus rural life and progressive beliefs versus more traditional beliefs, you get this almost calm peacefulness. And uh, there are birds chirping. There are small vehicles, but not a lot of them. And it's kind of relatable in the sense that we've all been in nature and experienced a piece like that before, so we can relate. So there's this nice contrast there. And then we get this great time lapse. And then later we get this great shot where these characters are kind of silhouetted in this house. So visually, we see the Panahi is playing around with images. He has a little bit more of a... uh, a formal control on the look of this film because of the nature of its setup. And he's using that to tell, to tell the story. Going back to some of these conversations that the characters have with the villagers, at one point they talk about a, an actress and she was popular at one time and then but it was before the revolution and now she's not and she's kind of banished to the outskirts of this village and we get the sense that these villagers are are mistreating her and one villager though says something to the effect of you know she became this actress and now she's all alone and what panahi does there is We don't agree with the character per se in the way that they're treating her or the way that they're kind of looking down on any type of excursion outside the village. But we can understand a little bit there this collective society where the characters rely on each other and they are a group and none of them have to be alone or will be alone because of that tight-knit system. And I really love that because, one, it pushes us to see where those characters are wrong. But it also pushed me to see, okay, if if they're on one end of the extreme, we as a society in America can be on, on the far other in that the community doesn't matter. It's all about the individual. So I love kind of working through all these ideas. Now, I think the film is a little slow in places, and I, I think that the – the three faces metaphor is it refers to the three actresses that are referred to in the film. You have Jafari, who's kind of at the height of her career, and then you have this aging actress. And I think they could have probably pulled out some of the relationships a little bit stronger. But overall, I'm I'm pretty pleased with this film and how it came out.
Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that uh, third, the third actress, the older actress, uh, Sharzad, I think is is the way she's named in the film. The way that it suggests almost a culpability on the part of Panahi for the way. Um, or maybe not Panahi specifically, but just the way that an entire film industry can uh, take uh, promising young talent like uh, this this young actress who is you know dreams of being uh, a star one day and kind of is able to use them to create great art, but then once they their films go out of favor or once they kind of age out of a certain age range. They're discarded almost. Like Sharzad is living by herself in a small house out in the country, and all of the, her neighbors kind of, you know, dislike her and, and ostracize her. And also, the way that Jafari's role is portrayed in this film is almost like she's feeling so distraught over the possibility that she may be uh, responsible for a suicide. But then the the film plays a little bit with Panahi's persona, right? Like Panahi's known for uh, blurring the line between reality and artifice. And we come to understand that he was working on a screenplay about a suicide before going on this road trip with Jafari. And she tells him, you know, if if this isn't real, I'll deal with that with that girl. And maybe I'll deal with you too. Kind of making it clear that she's not just somebody to be moved around inside of a camera frame like like a doll in a dollhouse. This isn't a game to her. And the the young actress who is suspected to have committed suicide, her, her dreams are also not just a, an abstraction as something to be judged morally or not. It's very real to her, and it's something that needs to be uh, treated with with great care. And I think Panahi is really, by the end of the film, comes to the a sort of conclusion that all these structures that have been set up by society, many of them put in place by men, fail to understand the women who are integral to those structures working. And I think that this final shot, which I'm not going to spoil, the way that the characters move during that final shot, the direction in which they're moving and the way that shot is framed, make it very clear uh, where Panahi is telling us that our allegiances should lie. And, and I I am so thankful that he chose not to simply focus on his ban here and to tell another story about that. Though that, like I mentioned, that plays into it. But he does tell this other story. He tells it well. And then it it puts forth the question that we've seen countless times, uh, the director as God, playing the part of God and controlling every detail and then discarding the elements after that director is done using them. So this film is multi-layered, and if you're not careful— some of those ideas are just going to kind of sneak up on you or you might even miss some of them. And that's why I, I'm glad to just kind of sit in this movie and be able to think about it for a while because it is a, it is a rich film and it's, it is a unique and special film, I, I think. Uh, and I'm, you know, 
glad that we had a chance to see it because Panahi is really kind of, I wouldn't say that his constraints have made him a better filmmaker, but it it's possible that they've helped him work through certain ideas that have really helped him develop some experimental films that, that are unique and he might not have developed otherwise. I'd like to see this film a second time too, because one thing that I've found so interesting about um, particularly Taxi is the way that he uses the camera. So in that film, he's obviously working very strongly in this documentary conceit. So the way the camera sees things, we we understand that it is seeing things in a certain mode or in a certain way. In this film... I, I would like to see it again because I'm I'm interested in a couple of camera movements. So there's there's one moment where it's just after that exchange that I mentioned where uh, Jafari is telling him that if you're you know putting this on just for the sake of a film, I'm gonna get you. Uh, the camera has been with them in the f- car that entire time. After she says that, we we cut to a different shot. And then we come to realize the camera is outside the car and the car just drives past us and goes up the the road. And it's very consciously um, stylized choice there. It's not like the very strongly documentarian camera use that was in Taxi. It's something a little bit different. I want to see this film again because I'm not entirely sure that I... I'm not entirely sure that I'm happy with the implications that this new aesthetic brings to this film, but I do think it's interesting. Well, listeners, that is our review of Three Faces from director Jafar Panahi. It's currently playing in limited release across the country. If you live nearby a theater that's that's playing the film, we would encourage you to check it out. Kevin, we've reached the end of our episode. This is the part of the show where we take an opportunity to recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners, what would you like to recommend today? Well, we spent a lot of breath talking about metafictional games and, and the dividing line between uh, reality and fiction. And that combined with the more violent uh, story in Triple Frontier made me think of Michael Haneke's Funny Games. This is a film that he made twice, actually, once in 1997 in his native German and once in 2007 with uh, a more uh, recognizable cast to an American audience and in English. Um, They're both really good. It's basically a shot-for-shot remake. So whichever one you watch, you're basically going to get a very similar experience. And this is a film that is a tough sit, not because it's hyper-violent, although there are a couple of violent moments. The brutality in this film is all in Haneke not letting the audience off the hook for anything. So the movie begins as almost the standard home invasion thriller. We see uh, these two young men uh, break into the home of a husband, a wife, and their child, and basically hold them hostage. And we feel like we understand what kind of film this is, and then the characters begin talking to us. They begin talking directly into the camera to us, the audience, and they begin to ask us, 
what our expectations are for what kind of a movie this is going to be. Uh, I'm not going to give away any more than that, but it's uncomfortable to be put under the microscope like that, and Haneke uses that discomfort very, very well in this film. And I think it's a film, whichever version you see, it's a film that's worth seeing and grappling with and deciding what you're going to do in response to it. I I think it's really good. I've seen the american version and i've thought about that film a great deal it it is frustrating it's a frustrating experience but i think that's kind of the point so yeah it it, it is it is a film that you just kind of have to see and interestingly enough brady corbett plays one of the just really creepy home invaders in this picture and he actually directed, he's a director as well, he directed a film, Vox Lux, with Natalie Portman that I recently saw. And I, I don't know if I'd recommend that film. It's it's definitely worth talking about, but it's kind of an interesting <laughs> connection there. I'm going to actually recommend a film that I referenced last week. It's from 1971. It's The French Connection. It's directed by William Friedkin. I hadn't seen this film before. Uh, watched it for the first time. There is some connection between this and Captain Marvel. A great chase scene. It's it, one of the best chase scenes in history. It's kind of been labeled that, and it did not disappoint. Uh, and it's kind of mimicked a bit in Captain Marvel. This stars a young Gene Hackman. He plays a gritty New York City cop. He stumbles upon this drug smuggling operation that has a French connection and he seeks to to thwart it. This movie it it really it really plays to the gritty cop template though it was at the beginning of that gritty cop template. So there are a number of films that have emulated this this particular story. What I appreciate about the story, not only are there some great sequences, some great cat and mouse sequences, but the ending feels pretty bold. Now, I haven't seen the sequel to this film, but I really like the ending, and it kind of brings it all together for me. So it's a film that I would uh, definitely recommend, 1971, The French Connection. Yeah, that ending is really bold. It's so bold that I'm not sure I entirely oh, like okay. it. Because I, I, it's funny because we, we were talking about this last week, how we both ended up watching The French Connection for the very first time within yeah. days of each other without really deciding to do that or anything. And it's it was interesting when I was watching it for the first time, like feeling almost as if, wait, is, shouldn't there be more after that? And the movie's like, nope, there's no more after that. And it's uh, it's definitely a, a really strong choice, one that I appreciate for sure, even if, if I'm not sure I'm entirely sold on it. It's the sort of ending that... I I appreciate. Yeah, I think I yeah I, I I like the ending, but there's there's a lot to kind of there's a lot to unpack there, and I think that's what puts this film it sets it apart from most gritty cop dramas in that there's a certain path with a lot of the newer ones with the main character and where they want that character to go, and here it says no we're 
we're going to go in a different direction. And uh, yeah, a lot to talk about. Well, that is our episode today. We hope you check out those two films. Next week, we're really excited. As I mentioned, we're going to be reviewing Jordan Peele's Us. It's a film that we're both looking forward to. And we would encourage you to get the word out on the podcast. If you have an opportunity, rate and review us on iTunes. It's it's a perfect way to let people know about the show. So search for Seeing and Believing. Give us a star rating. Type out a review. You can support us www.patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristinPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.